This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. As I often say, whenever there's an opportunity to bring in what I call an industry leader, and we definitely have one today, I'll do it. Uh, I think my role as someone that's been in the business of sports is being able to tap into some of the, the real uh, network in the industry nationally and locally. So we have that today. Um, again, always <laughs> seem to be apologizing for my own time if I'm called away because of this Adrian Peterson matter going on today. Uh, but I'm fortunate to be here with our special guest, Scott Profrock from the Philadelphia Phillies. Let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you. That's the most applause we've gotten uh, <laughs> in, a, in a while. <laughs> I knew you had that line. <laughs> it's been rough lately, and justifiably so. You know, you <laughs> well, we're not going to hit you with that. You've got to take the good with the bad. So, What I like to do is people in the industry that uh, have had uh, successful careers just explain to the students sort of your background and how you got into it. We've heard a lot of people get into it in ways way beyond sports. Somehow it's right place, right time, they end up in it. So. Yeah. If you would, your background and getting into sports and then the Phillies. I will absolutely uh, give you an interesting story, I, I think. Um, I did not play baseball. I got cut from my JV baseball team. I, I was a basketball player. I uh, played a couple years of basketball in junior college and, uh, and then transferred to William & Mary where I was not, uh, not good enough to, to play, even at, even at William & Mary. Um, but uh, always had a love of sports. Always was very interested in it. Uh, I got an accounting degree at William and Mary, became a CPA, uh, and worked in Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia, for uh, four years with an accounting firm. I started out in the audit department and uh, found that that wasn't something that I liked. And then I tried the tax department and found that that wasn't anything I liked. Uh, I'd started to work on a, a master's degree in taxation at VCU and uh, decided I didn't want to spend do that either. And uh, I had worked in a restaurant in uh, Cape Cod where I grew up over the summers and a couple of guys that uh, uh, I worked with had started, a, had gone to the sport management program at UMass uh, as undergrads. And one of them uh, was with the Mets in 86 and you know got a world, cha world championship ring with them. And I thought that was pretty cool. So um, I decided that uh, you know, that might be something I want to do. And in actuality, uh, a couple of guys I worked with um, and I had looked into buying the Spartanburg, uh, I think they were the Spartanburg Suns in the uh, South Atlantic League in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And in probably what was the dumbest thing uh, in my life that I had done, I we could have bought them for a 10-year note for $200,000, paid $20,000 a year for the franchise back then and uh, that franchise I think right now is probably worth let's see they went to Kannapolis and then I'm not sure where they went from there but uh, it's probably worth 15 to 20 million dollars right now so <laughs> it wasn't wasn't real bright but anyway you wouldn't be sitting here no I wouldn't be <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway what the three of us decided to do was you know they would stay working in accounting and I would go back to, to school and get a sport management degree and you know try to figure out a way to you know how to run a, a minor league baseball team kind of thing was was the the goal and I uh, went to UMass was accepted it's a one-year program uh, it was at the time in 1987 uh, 
be perfectly frank, it was not the most challenging academic experience of my life at that particular time. Uh, the sport management field was more geared towards PE majors uh, that were looking to be athletic directors, and they basically gave them some some pretty simplistic, uh, you know, business classes, marketing classes, you know, that sort of thing, uh, to try to prepare people to be a you know associate or assistant AD uh, at a university, uh, you know, with a PE background. I spent a lot of time uh, doing independent study. Uh, I worked with uh, Professor Glenn Wong, uh, who was at the program there, helped him actually helped him write a sports law textbook mm. uh, as one of my my projects there. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, you know, Major League Baseball had an executive development program, uh, which they still have now. And uh, Glenn was uh, very instrumental in getting me a opportunity to, to uh, compete for that uh, a position in the commissioner's office. Uh, I did not get that, uh, but as a result, uh, I held off getting an internship. One of the requirements for graduation was doing an internship, and I held off applying for one uh, in, because of that. I didn't want to commit somewhere and then end up you know, getting the opportunity in the commissioner's office. And when I didn't get that, uh, I started doing some work uh, for the Cape Cod League, uh, you know, free, a lot of free work in, in getting your foot in the door uh, and, you know, tried to set up some corporate sponsorships for them. And while I was doing that, one of the professors that I had at UMass had left the program and gone to be uh, the executive vice president of, of business operations for the Pittsburgh Pirates, a gentleman by the name of Bernie Mullen. I believe he's with the NBA uh, right. now. Uh but uh, he called and offered me an internship, a paid internship, for $125 a week. And uh, uh, I was excited. I've been a Pirate fan since I was a little kid uh, in a you know, small world thing. And my mother had gone to a business college with a woman who was the PR director at the Pirates. And it always sent me kind of you know autographs and programs and stuff when the, the heyday of the Pirates was of the early 70s to the, well, actually the whole 70s. You know, whether it was Roberto Clemente or Willie Stargell, those guys were all my, my heroes when I was a kid growing up. So it was kind of cool to go to work there. Meanwhile, I sort of strayed from the path of the, you know, the buying the minor league baseball team for two reasons. One, at about that time, that whole industry just took off. Uh the values of those franchises were, you know, just exploding. And um, it, you know, timing-wise, you know, we sort of missed the boat on, on uh, getting involved in that. And, you know, I got, I'd gotten uh, my foot in the door with an internship with a major league franchise, which is really not something I was, you know, necessarily anticipating. Uh, the job I had was a, uh, I was a marketing intern. And uh, the first thing I did was, uh, Bernie has this, uh, theory he called the escalator theory and he would look at attendance and you know the pirates I think they had all sort did all sorts of promotions in in 86 uh, when he was consulting for them to draw a million fans I think they you know I don't know something tied to fried chicken or whatever I mean they they did whatever hooker by crook they got a million fans in the ballpark but one of the things they did was, they did surveys and they identified that, you know, of that million fans that they drew, you know, there were maybe 300,000 unique individuals that attended the games. 
And one of the things that Bernie wanted to do was he thought the best way or most efficient way to, to increase attendance was not to put billboards up over town that, you know, maybe one in 10 people were any, had any interest in the Pirates. His idea was to focus his marketing on um, people that, you know, already had an interest in the Pirates. And by increasing their frequency of attendance, you know, from three times a year to five times a year, the attendance could grow from 900,000 to 1.5 million and, you know, be, be a more effective and efficient use of your funds. So one of the things that uh, they had was, uh, I don't know if anybody's from Western PA, but there are Giant Eagle supermarkets um, out there and they had a KDKA uh, home run contest. And they had these, you know, three by five index cards that people would either drop in the box at the supermarket or mail in. And there were literally, I don't know, it had to be hundreds of thousands of these things. So the first thing I did, and the other thing you got to remember is, uh, baseball is generally behind the curve from a technology standpoint. Um, and I had, you know, in, in accounting, I had carried around, and you, none of you are probably even born, but we had these big portable computers made by Compaq, who's, I guess, out of business now, Hewlett Packard, maybe. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, probably weighed 50 pounds, but they were portable and you carried them around. And, and so I, I had some computer experience in, in the Pittsburgh. They didn't have any computers, period, when I got there. And uh, anyway, they had just, just started to, uh, you know, use some of it in the baseball department and it sort of leaked into some of the other departments. So um, I created a, a database to capture the names on all these cards. Well, guess who had to enter them all into the database? I mean, so I'm sitting there typing away and typing away and typing away and typing away and, you know, maybe doing, you know, a couple hundred a day as slow as I was typing. I finally convinced him to go to a data entry service to enter them. And, and you know, we got to that point. And then those, those names, um, obviously people listen on the radio, uh, who have an interest in the product, they were, uh, you know, turned over the telemarketing people as leads and they would use those to try to sell tickets. And, you know, it actually worked out, you know, we did a lot of different things. Uh, and I was on the business side with, with my, you know, com computer knowledge, which was exponentially greater than anyone who was there. I proceeded to go around to different departments and try to build, uh, databases that could serve different parts of the, of the, the company. Uh, we, I did with the broadcasting department. We brought our broadcasting was in house, um, and we built a, a database that tracked the inventory of, of commercials. They'd been doing it, you know, by hand, uh, so they would be able to track, you know, what they'd sold, what they hadn't sold, and, and be able to print out a, a log, uh, you know. And then I also worked with the scoreboard operator, who, uh, you know, would. For highlights, they would they wrote down you know the tape times on the on the you know videotape, uh, which again is irrelevant these days. But they would write down the tape times as to when Barry Bonds hit a home run, you know, so they could go back and if they wanted to create something for the scoreboard, they would be able to pull it up and, and do that sort of thing. So I created a database for that, and when they did the the highlight video uh, in I want to say it was nineteen, I don't know eighty. 88, maybe. Yeah, 88. Uh, he gave me a little credit on the, on the highlight video, so that was pretty cool. But, uh, but I did a lot of things in different departments. And one of the other things that I did, uh, Jim Bowden, 
uh, was the assistant uh, in baseball operations to Sid Thrift, and he had started uh, to use uh, relational database uh, software to uh, computerize their operations on the baseball side, uh, and you know create uh, capture the the uh, reports, scouting reports from their scouts and enter them in and be able to do, you know, different searches and, and reports on, on them. And he, uh, as I was going around to different departments, he asked me to help him with some of the things he was doing on the baseball side. And in 1989, it was 89, 87, we finished the season strong. I think we won 27 of our last 38 games. And Jim Leland was the manager, Bonds and Bonilla and Drabeck and all those guys were, you know, young guys just on the on the on the cusp of of you know being, uh, you know, uh, solid major league players. And um, '88, we were in the we were in the hunt until um, probably July, end of July. Uh, and then fell off. The Mets ended up winning the division. And then '89, we had some injuries, fell back, and they made a change at the end of '89 and let Sid go. Um, and maybe I get this wrong, but anyway, uh, Jim stayed. But as soon no, it was uh, it was '88. At the end of '88. There was a power struggle. That's what it was with Sid. Sid wanted to take over both business and baseball, and uh, he lost the battle. They fired him, and uh, Jim stayed. But then Sid resurfaced with the Yankees um, in the spring of '89, and Jim left to go with him, and that left sort of a void on the baseball operations side. Jim hadn't really uh, involved, you know, any of the other people, and I don't think any of the people were really all that interested in being involved on the you know, the, the computer aspect of, of things in the baseball department. And as a result, um, I sort of spent a lot of time trying to make sure they knew what was going on. And at the end of 89, uh, you know, being in the right place at the right time, they asked me if I wanted to work on the baseball side. And, you know, long story short, I had, had, had absolutely no thought whatsoever of working on the baseball side of the operation when I got into this, you know, idea to work in, in, in sports. And um, I would have been happy to just, you know, work in the finance accounting department with the Pirates, you know, for the rest of my, you know, rest of my life because I was, a, you know, like a, excuse me, a pig in shit because it was, <laughs> you know, I was the, the my, my team I'd idolized, you know, followed in, and as a kid and, you know, the, you know, Willie Stargell, uh, you know, Kent Tacovey worked for the club, Steve Blass. I mean, they were around all the time. And uh, it was, it was just, it was, you know, it was cool. And uh, to get to work on the baseball side uh, was, you know, was something I'd never even imagined because I, you know, I figured I didn't play, hadn't played at any, at any high level. And uh, I thought that was the, the prerequisite, you know, to have a chance to work uh, on that side. And, you know, from that point forward, um, I've been been very blessed. I've been in the game now, you know, 27 years, uh, and I can honestly tell you, I haven't felt like I've worked a day in those 27 years. It's been a labor of love, and I have a passion for it. And uh, um, you know, it's just it's just been you know a great ride. I I was with the Pirates on the baseball side in 1990. We won the division, lost to the Reds in the playoffs. Uh, 
my boss, Chuck Lamar, uh, was hired by the Braves uh, to uh, become their director of scouting and player development. And he asked me to go along with him, <laughs> just to give you a little story with regards to that. Um, he left. Uh, I had been at the GM meetings with, with our general manager, Larry Doty, from the Pirates. And um, we got back, and Chuck called me and asked me if I wanted to go to the Braves. And um, I, I said, well, you know, I got to think about it. You know, this was like, I don't know, 9 o'clock on a, you know, weeknight. And he said, no, you don't have to think about it. You're either going to tell me yes or no right now. <laughs> and to know a little bit about the story in Pittsburgh, um, at that particular point in time, we knew there was no way we were going to be able to keep Bonds and Benia and Drabeck and all those guys together. It was only a matter of time before they were, uh, were going to um, – you know, get too expensive and, and leave, and they all basically did. But um, we also knew, you know, from our scouting reports that there was, you know, quite a wealth of talent in Atlanta. And uh, I wasn't married at the time, had no attachments other than, you know, my, you know, feelings for the Pirates. But, um, you know, he basically, you know, I, it was, you know, now or never. And I just said, okay, and, and packed up my car a couple weeks later and and drove to Atlanta and, and started there, which it was, you know, you know, we went. The funniest thing was in '91 we went uh, from worst to first and played the Pirates the next two years in the playoffs, and uh, it was a very interesting uh, dynamic with some of my old friends in Pittsburgh and and uh, all that. But uh, I will tell you one personal aspect of the story. Uh, with the Braves, I was in charge. I was I was a Hyder's assistant scouting director there, and I was in charge of planning our organization meetings. And I planned the organizational meetings for our spring train our spring training complex during instructional league in West Palm Beach. Well, you know, we didn't think we were going to be in the in the postseason after finishing last for the, the previous five years, and so we scheduled them for early October. So our guys would be down there in instructional league. You can, you know, kill two birds with one stone and see those guys play. And uh, fortunately, we got to the World Series, and and uh, we had to cancel those. But I had, was in charge of rescheduling them, and I rescheduled them for the Atlanta Airport Marriott, uh, beginning in November. And the day, I think we had a parade on Tuesday. Uh, in, in, through downtown Atlanta, and I had an appointment to uh, meet with the sales rep at the at the Marriott uh, by the airport, and on the same day, and I didn't go to the parade, and I went to the meeting. And when I showed up for the meeting, they're all looking at me like, "Why are you here?" And you know, we didn't win. I mean, that was you know, I mean, we we finished second. I mean, I'm not you know, I'd rather win, and then I'll have to go to a parade. But anyway, the woman that I was meeting with, uh, I had only spoken to on the phone. And when she walked out of her office, um, I don't remember anything the rest of the, the rest of the day. I don't remember what conversation we had. I don't remember anything, but, uh, but looking into her eyes. And when I got back to my office after the meeting, I told uh, a friend of mine who, who is now the traveling secretary of the Rockies, uh, I said, I met the girl I'm going to marry today. And, See, 91. Two years later, I did. So 
that's a little little sideline <laughs> of my my uh, uh, moving to Atlanta. But uh, with Atlanta, uh, we obviously won the pennant in ninety one, ninety two. Lost the Phillies in ninety three. The strike was in ninety four. In ninety five, um, uh, we won the World Series. But in ninety five, again, uh, and this is a trend that you'll see a lot in in any sport, I would imagine, but certainly in baseball. Uh, my boss, Chuck Lamar, was hired as the general manager of the expansion uh, Tampa Bay Devil Rays. They were the Devil Rays then. And um, he, again, asked me to, to go along with him. And I don't think it was quite the ultimatum that I got the last time, but uh, it was a great opportunity for me. I was uh, named, uh, at that point, I think it was director of baseball administration uh, with with the Rays and was basically, I think it was the third or fourth employee hired there and was involved in literally every aspect of the, of the franchise there. Uh, I was there for 10 years. Uh, we did not have a lot of success there. Uh, the ownership changed at the end of 05 and, and I was fired along with, uh, along with Chuck, uh, and a couple other people. Um, and, uh, I'm very proud of what we did there. I told uh, Mr. Sternberg when uh, when we were let go, I said, uh, you know, I know we didn't have a lot of success uh, while we were here, but I think you've, and I think they knew what they were doing when they bought the team it was an undervalued asset, and that's, uh, but we had accumulated through, you know, through some, some bad decisions, but accumulated a lot of good players. And I told him at the time, I said, you know, I'll be, I'm going to be very proud of what happens here in the next five years because I know what you're left with talent-wise. And uh, obviously they got to the, the World Series in 08, um, you know, not long after that. But uh, from there, I uh, was fortunate to be hired by the Orioles uh, and worked there for three years um, and uh, was was party to one of the uh, – probably the – the biggest steals uh, in regards to a trade in the history of the game. We got uh, we traded Eric Bedard, who was on the last second to last year, I think, of his contract, maybe at the last year of his contract before free agency, and we got Adam Jones, uh, Chris Tillman, uh, George Sherrill, and a couple other guys, Cam McLeo and uh, uh, Adam Butler, I think, was the other player's name uh, for. Uh, for Bedard, and uh, I just had lunch with Andy McPhail, who was our GM at the time, uh, the other day, and we sort of rehashed that because it, uh, I was trying to figure out exactly how patient we need to be if we're going to move Mr. Hamels. Um, so, but uh, uh, it was uh, it was uh, uh, a good a good run there. We built a foundation there. I got the opportunity uh, when Ruben was hired as GM uh, with uh, the Phillies. Uh, I'd had a relationship with him over the years, you know, sitting next to him at, uh, at the GM meetings. Um, and, uh, he asked me, uh, during game five of the world series, uh, I probably shouldn't say that cause he hadn't been officially named then yet, but uh, I think he had an inkling that it was going to be, but, uh, he asked me if I would be interested in, in coming on board uh, with the Phillies. And I said, I was, and here I am. So, uh, we had had a, uh, a pretty good run uh, in 9, 10, and 11, uh, three more divisions, best record in the game all three of those years. And uh, then, you know, as happens, uh, our players started to get a little older. Uh, we started paying them for past performance instead of future performance uh, to try to keep the, uh, 
you know, keep it going. And, uh, you know, injuries befell us in 2012 with Chase and uh, uh, Howard from the 11 postseason forward. Uh, Halliday had some injury trouble, and then 13, the same thing continued. And, you know, we tried one more time, uh, one last gasp, I think, to try to extend it, and, uh, and it didn't work out so good. So now we're left in a situation where we have uh, – some really old players with some, you know, really uh, large contracts and some restrictions uh, to them that, that we have to figure out how to move forward and, and turn the page. So, um, unfortunately, the pages are a little sticky. So, but, uh, but that's where we're at, and uh, that's how I got here. So, actually, I'll pick up on the last phrase you used about a minute ago: um, past performance rather than future performance. You know, contract decisions are very emotional sometimes. And I think what we're seeing in baseball, and that's moved to other sports, is more of a detached, analytical money ball, if you will. Absolutely. Look at paying players undervalued assets versus, I think you've admitted it. I think we've seen it as fans. You fell in love with players that everyone fell in love with. Every fan in here fell in love with. And now you're stuck, as you said, with these contracts. So in those decision-making moments on the big contracts, whether it's Howard or whoever, was it a discussion about, hey, are we doing, are we doing this? Are we paying for an emotional reaction to past performance rather than a pure detached analytical look at what he brings us going forward? Yeah, there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly emotional aspects to all of them. I, I go back to Ryan Howard. I mean, we did Ryan Howard probably two years before we had to. Yeah. The thought process, what was going on at the time, if you recall, was Albert Pujols was also uh, going to be a free agent. Texera had just signed with the uh, as a free agent with the with the Yankees, and we had just signed Howard to a three year uh, extension, and he'd had a great year in '09. Um, you know, was MVP of the LCS. Um, you know, came into camp, worked his butt off, was in good shape, improved his defense. You know, everything was, you know, and this was, excuse me, after he had signed, you know, the extension. So we're thinking, well, okay, this guy, you know, gets it. He wants to be good. He's, you know, he's dedicated, you know, that sort of thing. And he is, and don't get me wrong. Um, but our thought was, you know, we need to get out ahead of what's going to happen with Pujols because whatever happens with Pujols is going to drag him, you know, with him. And we did a five-year deal. Again, two years before we had to, and as it, you look at, I mean, he his the contract, his first contract would have been up after the 11 season, and he was, you know, he ended the 11 season lying on the ground with, you know, with an Achilles tear, um, you know. So, you know, who knows what would have happened if we if we hadn't extended him. However, the other thing that I do know is that at the same time, Albert Pujols became a free agent, signed a 10-year deal for $250 million, and we would have been in the bidding for that. Uh, Prince Fielder signed a nine-year deal, you know, and he ended up getting that only because Victor Martinez, you know, hurt himself and, and was, was down because I don't think the market was there for him until that happened. Right. But, you know, looking back on it, I mean, I think, I think we probably – you know, saved ourselves from being uh, having a tenure. You know, we'd have Albert Pujols, but 
we'd have him for 10 years, you know, through his year, you know, 43. So, I mean, I think we did the right thing. It didn't work out right. Uh, that was not an emotional decision. That was a, that was, we, that was a calculated to decision to try to get in a market. Right. Now, some of the ones we've done, you know, recently, uh, you know, Carlos Ruiz, I can honestly tell you was a, you know, was an emotional one. I mean, you know, he's 35, 36 years old. We signed him to a three-year deal with an option. Um, he's, you know, you know, one of the favorite, you know, fan favorites, whatever that was the, that's the perception. And, um, you know, it was quite a heated argument, you know, through the process to whether we needed to, you know, to sign him or go in a different direction. And we ended up, you know, we ended up signing him, um, you know, Chase Utley, uh, we did build some protections into that contract. It's a, it's a, it was a two year deal with, you know, three club vesting options. So, that if he does have some some uh, further knee problems, um, we're protected, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in that situation. Um, you know, Cole Hamels, you know, that was sort of a no-brainer. However, we got, you know, drug up because of what we did with Cliff Lee, um, you know, and, um, you know, we had the opportunity to do somewhat something like Boston did if we'd gone back to 2012, uh, what Boston did with Lester, we could have, you know, flipped Cole, gotten some prospects back because 12, you know, I think we were, you know, 14 games under 500, uh, you know, at the trade deadline. And then Howard came back and we played better, you know, after he came back from the Achilles. But, um, you know, we could have flipped Cole for some players at that particular point in time and then tried to sign him back uh, if that's what we wanted to do. Uh, instead we went, you know, we went to, you know, the long-term deal with him. So, um, but, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy was a situation where, uh, after 2011, we just finished with the best record in baseball. We lost obviously in the, to the Cardinals in the first round of the playoffs, but, uh, we did not have a, a ready replacement, uh, for him. Uh, and that was one where we sort of let the market, you know, bring him back to us because he was out there looking for a five-year deal and he ended up with three years and a, and a vesting option player vesting club player option so um you know there was an emotion emotional attachment to him obviously but um you know he was still playing at a high level and, and still has played for a high level for the for the most part uh with regards to the contract his offense is maybe down a little bit but his defense is still um you know amongst the best in the game so you know, there's a hit or miss. I mean, there's some that, you know, uh, you know, quite frankly, for me, uh, you know, with regard to Chase, um, I would have just made him a qualifying offer and not, you know, entangled us into, you know, the yeah. long term. Because for me, you know, after after we made the change with Charlie in, in 2013, um, that was sort of the, to me, that's where the window right. kind of should have should have closed. Um, but... You know, we we decided to, to go for it one more one more time, and and like I said, it didn't it didn't work out. You know, Burnett um, was a guy that uh, we had at the top of our list as free agent pitchers. He told I, mean, I have a personal relationship with him. He's my him and my son are uh, his son and my son are best friends, and he told me you know after he got back from uh, pitching in the in the postseason with the Pirates uh, in 2013 that he was done. And I told our guys, you know, forget about him. He's not going to pitch. And then I coached basketball. I coached the 
the boys in basketball with him and he kept you know hinting that he might pitch again and so we went ahead and signed him and it was a, it was a right fit you know they didn't make him a qualifying offer so there was no there was no draft pick compensation attached it was a one year deal uh, the structure of the contract uh, that player option I think it's sort of been overblown that he you know turned it down I don't think he was ever really considering it um, because we did that in order to protect us against the competitive balance uh, threshold mm. um, which we did not want to go over uh, and that's motivated some of the other things we've done over the over the last few years when we've been up pushing that limit but um, you know that was just a mechanism to protect us and bring the AAV of the contract down with regards to you know the way the competitive balance tax is compete is computed but um, you know he was the best pitcher out there and we needed another pitcher in the rotation with with Cliff and Cole and um, you know, unfortunately, he got a he had a hernia pitch. He still gave us 200, 200 plus innings. They weren't they weren't the best innings, but he still took the ball and and that has value uh, in our game, obviously. So, uh, but like I said, it just didn't work out, and we're at a situation now where, you know, we've got you know our second baseman and shortstop have ten and five rights, so they can't go anywhere without their permission. Uh, we've got you know Cole has. A list of nine teams that he can be traded to. Ryan has the same thing. Um, you know, I think Bird has four, and I think Ruiz has four teams that they can't be traded to. So, you know, we've got some, you know, we've got some uh, some restrictions and things that we can do. But um, you know, like we were saying, I think we, you know, I think we, in a lot of those cases, um, you know, we paid for. Uh, past performance, you know, based upon, you know, the, what they did in, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, and 11 for us. So. It's so interesting for me to hear all this because coming from a background in football, just cut them. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole, it's a whole different, you don't deal. have guarantees. So you just move on. Now yep. you have cap hits, uh, but that's not cash hits. So usually football contracts, five, six year deals have two years basically guaranteed. So then it's, you know, they're only worth the paper they're written on. Yep. But these are real deals. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So talk a little bit about not having a cap, but I'm sure through ownership you have a budget. Absolutely. And you talk about making the decision with some of these bigger deals. Obviously, that comes from above, like you got the money to do it. Right, right. right. Well, they've been, they've been great. I mean, you know, Cliff Lee... Going back to that whole situation, I mean, we, you know, we had, uh, we had traded him, uh, which I don't know, may may have been, you know, one of the, one of the start starting uh, of the dominoes for us. Uh, we had a we had a chance to sign him uh, at the winter meetings in two thousand and nine after we after we'd been to the World Series after we traded for him. And um, Ruben and I met with his agent. Uh, we offered a three-year deal uh, with an option. He had one year left, uh, and we did one plus three in an option. And he wanted one plus five. He was happy with the dollars that we'd offered him. And we thought, Ruben and I thought, you know, this is great. We, we're going to get we're gonna one plus four. We'll get a deal done. And uh, we went back to meet with uh, the rest of the the baseball people, and uh, they like 
they couldn't believe we'd offered them as much money as we'd offered them. Hmm. I think it was eighteen million dollars a year for three years with a with an option or something like that. And um, uh, so that took us aback a little bit. And what had happened earlier is that we had um, we had tried to uh, uh, you know talked about trading for Halliday over the we over that at the trade deadline we didn't get him. Uh, we got Cliff instead, and it worked out very well for us. But uh, Toronto changed GMs. Uh, J.P. Ricciardi was let go, and Alex Anthopoulos came on. And Alex had approached Ruben uh, at the GM meetings in Chicago that year and had continued conversations with him. And we ended up, uh, you know, exploring that. And what ended up happening is we actually got Roy – at a, I think it was a, I think we did a one, he had one year left and we did a, a three year extension on that. Uh, and when we were able to get that done, uh, we gave up uh, Travis Darnot and uh, Michael Taylor and Kyle Drabeck, I think was who was in that trade. And those were three of our, our better prospects. And ownership was, you know, you can do that, but you got to find a way to replenish the players you're giving up in the system. And when we didn't, you know, when we got that kind of feedback from, you know, the rest of the, the baseball operations people on Cliff that they didn't want to pay him that much money, and we got Halliday, who we thought was a better pitcher at a, at a, at a deal that we were more comfortable with, the only piece that we had that was able to be moved was Cliff. So, you know, we traded Cliff and ended up getting, you know, three players, Philippe Almond, Tyson Gillies, and J.C. Ramirez back for him. And um, it probably, I don't know, there's something about trading Cliff Lee. If you go back and track who he's been traded for, uh, there's not anybody that he's been traded for that has done anything with the possible exception of uh, Carlos Carrasco. And that just happened this year with the Indians after there was 09. So that was five years later, six years later. Uh, he ended up in the rotation and, and pitched very well at the end of the year. But, you know, Lou Marson, uh, Jason Donald, uh, uh, Jason Knapp, I mean, none of those panned out. Uh, Seattle traded him to Texas for Smoke, Lutke, uh, I don't know, Blevins or Bevins. I don't even remember. I mean, I can't, I, honestly, of the 12 players he's been traded for, you know, Carrasco's the only one that's done anything, mm. which, again, gives you a little idea of some of the, the risks involved in, in trading for prospects. But um, anyway, uh, you know, Halliday. We got done, and then um, you know we, we had to we had to trade Cliff. You know again, as you say, on orders of ownership, basically that you know when you, if you're going to do this, you need to find a way to get more players into the system. So that's the kind of that's the kind of give and take that, that takes place. Now moving forward, uh, after eleven or after ten, I'm sorry, uh, we lost to the Giants in the LCS, and Cliff was a free agent. And Jason Worth was a free agent, and we made Jason an offer we were comfortable with. I think it was three years and forty-eight million 
with an option for another 16. Um, and obviously we're blown away by what the, what the Nationals did in seven years, $128 million. But um, I had stayed in contact with, with Cliss Agent, who I was, I was friends with because he's also A.J. Burnett's agent, and I'd met him a few times you know, at A.J.'s house with, with you know, entertaining or whatever. And Cliff was extremely upset um, when we traded him. Uh, his wife was probably even more upset when we traded him. But um, I would send, uh, you know, Derek Broniker is his name, uh, send him emails, you know, texts, whatever, you know, good luck, because they, they made it to the World Series, the Rangers did, after, you know, he was traded from Seattle to, to Texas. And, um, you know, stayed in touch with him, and, um, you know, after we knew Worth wasn't coming back, you know, we sort of kicked it around a little bit about, uh, you know, you know, Cliff's available, you know, do we want to go down that road? And the only people that knew that it, we were pursuing him were David Montgomery, myself, and Ruben, and eventually Pat Gillick, because David was of the mindset that we just lost Jason Worth, you know, to free agency. If we go after this guy and don't get him, it's going to be a disappointment, you know, for the fans from a, you know, from a, a marketing standpoint. So we didn't tell anybody. Um, and, uh, you know, we went, you know, well over budget, uh, you know, to be able to do that. And it, you know, it turned out to be, a, you know, a huge, uh, you know, boost, uh, to the fan base and, you know, excitement and all the, all the things that it did. And, and, you know, obviously he, he pitched very well for us in 2011 and we got back to the postseason and. He's pitched very well for us, uh, obviously, uh, since then, except for, you know, being hurt this past year. So, um, but, you know, that was a situation where they decided to go well beyond, um, you know, what they wanted to, uh, you know, to bring back a, a popular player, uh, you know, into that, into that situation and go, basically go over budget in that, in that circumstance. But the main, the only mandate we've really had is, is to stay beneath the, the competitive balance threshold, which, which is was 178 million up until this year, and it's 189 million uh, now. And the contract values are calculated differently than, uh, you know, just what the cash is paid out that year. I mean, in you know Howard's case, the first three years I think were 20 million, and the last two years are 25 million. But they and then there's a 10 million dollar buyout. But so what they've, you know, the AAV of the contract is 25 million. So that's what that's what oh, okay. it, that's what's charged for that year, whether you pay twenty million or twenty five million or, or whatever. So, anyway, that's something that I've, you know, been been charged with, and uh, we've, you know, thankfully, you know, stayed beneath it. There's a seventeen percent tax the first time you're over, and it increases, you know, to thirty, and then I think it's forty and fifty if you know the, the Yankees are paying fifty percent on everything. They're over one hundred eighty nine million because they've been over it. You know, they're over yeah. it all the time. Uh, the Dodgers, you know, this, they're heading that same direction with their payroll the way it is now, too. So, and, you know, that's, you know, in some people, their minds, it's a cost of doing business for them. I mean, for them to, you know, their farm system hasn't been, uh, you know, the greatest. Uh, and, you know, they've made the determination that, you know, with the Yes Network and their revenues, the Dodgers with their TV deal, yeah. that they can afford to, you know, to do those kind of things. So, you so think it's working? I mean, that's basically your version of a cap. Yeah, you think it's working to include more teams to competitive balance? 
Uh, I, you know, I think it's, you know, the, 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 in the past, the only teams that have gone over it are, are generally the Yankees and the Red Sox. The Red Sox have been under it, uh, here recently. Um, and now the Dodgers are over it. So it, those are really the only teams that it impacts. Is it helping the low market teams at all? I don't think so, but I think what what's happening is um, as the industry revenues are are increasing, you know, and revenue sharing, excuse me, is is uh, is making you know making those clubs you know whether it's the TV deals and whatever the the central fund revenues that they share are, you know, even the Rays had a payroll of you know close to eighty some million dollars. Um, you know, some teams have you know gone to the other extreme. I mean, Houston, I think. You know, they went they yeah. had a twenty-nine million dollar payroll there, you know, a couple of years ago. And now they're they're you know they're saying this year they're willing to increase it by thirty million, but it's still probably going to get them up to about seventy or eighty million dollars. So, um, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, I think you know we see what's going on with the the seventy sixers and the NBA. I think there's you know I think there's you know some aspect of you know rebuilding teams that you know take that tack as well. Houston. You know, they wanted the first pick in the draft, you know, for three or four years in a row. You look at the Nationals, that's how, you know, they got Strasburg and mm-hmm. Harper. Um, you know, even uh, Kansas City, you know, some of their guys, you know, Jeff or Alex Gordon was the first player picked in the country. Uh, Hosmer was in the top 10. I mean, you know, that's the other thing that's going on in our game, unfortunately. And it's one of the things we talked about at the industry meetings. Um, we are losing uh, players. Uh, athletes to other sports. Um, mm. It's, you know, and, it, and it's not just us. I mean, you look at the major sports, um, you know, baseball, uh, hockey, I mean, I'm sorry, baseball, basketball, football, and surprisingly, the, the data we saw, soccer, are all uh, down in participation rates. And the two sports that are, um, you know, growing the fastest now are hockey and lacrosse. Lacrosse is, I mean, it's it's an unbelievable uh, growth rate, and I can, you know, living in Maryland, um, you know, hotbed of, of lacrosse always has been, but, um, you know, our, our scout when I was with the Orioles would tell me, you know, 20 years ago, the athletes, you know, would play baseball, and whoever didn't make the baseball team would go out for right. lacrosse, and it's exactly the opposite now, um, and uh, whether it's, you know, we've got some things we have to, to, to grapple with baseball. I mean, scholarships, you know, for a, a college baseball team, you know, what has 12 and a half or, or 13 scholarships to, to dole out amongst, you know, 25 to 30 kids. And, you know, the other sports, for whatever reason, um, you know, I'm sure it's economics, you know, can give you a full ride for, you know, obviously football, basketball, you know, I'm assuming lacrosse can do that now. I don't know, but, um, you know, I guess there aren't a lot of expenses involved with, with lacrosse, but, um, you know, it's amazing. You know, parents are motivated by that, and, you know, when they see the opportunity for a kid to get a, you know, full ride playing lacrosse or, you know, a quarter or a half playing baseball, I mean, that's a pretty easy decision. And quite frankly, the kids probably more interested in playing lacrosse than baseball because we've done a pretty bad job of educating people on the, the nuances and the intricacies of baseball. Uh, there's not a lot of action visibly, but there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, on every pitch, you know, where there's adjustments being made, you know, pitch to pitch and, and 
um, you know, situation to situation, and and there's not a but there's not a lot of action, and you know, when at the young that young age when they play it, you know, I mean, I you know, I watch my son go through t-ball and all the rest of it, and it's it's hard to watch, and I imagine it's not that much fun to play uh, when you're standing out, in, you know, right field or wherever, and the ball never comes to you in you know an hour and a half that you're out there. So uh, we've got to do a better job of of uh, you know making it more more interesting and uh you know making it more attractive uh for kids to play because if we don't um you know we're going to be we're going to be watching uh uh you know non-american players playing the game i mean our the the percentage of of foreign players playing the game has gone up and this is just in the major leagues, but I think it's it's. Uh, I guess this is in the major leagues. I think it's it was in the low twenties, and now it's in the mid thirties. The percent of non uh, non native players playing in the major leagues, and it's it's a trend that's continuing. Uh, I sat in the draft this year, and it's been a while since I've been in there, but I it struck me that we're talking about players in the in the third or fourth round that we didn't talk about. You know, in years past, and it's been five or six years since I was in there in any extended period of time. But we didn't talk about those guys until you got into the you know, the the low teens. You know, players that have one tool that can only you know do one thing, and it was it was really surprising to me that you know, um, you know, we we there was that that lack of talent. I mean, it got to the you know, hitting and offense. I think everybody's aware offense in our game is way down. Uh, whether it's related to the PEDs or whatever, uh, being out of the game, but we don't have a lot of pitching in our system at our upper levels. And I thought, you know, the thing to do would be to take a pitcher, mm-hmm. which we did. But when sitting in that room, there might have been, you know, a handful of guys that, you know, you thought were hitters, were legitimate hitters. And if you didn't take them in that fir- with that first pick, they weren't going to be there afterwards. There was pitching, you know, that you could get afterwards. But if you didn't take the the hitter with that first pick, you might you wouldn't you weren't going to get one. Right. And you know that was that was an interesting, uh, you know, revelation for me because you know oh well, let's get the best pitcher, but you know we still got to find somebody to hit the ball, play offense. So, couple minutes for quick questions. Right. How could baseball sustain uh, these contracts? And it's it's going to be so much dead money for all these guys, and their bodies just can't. It, it's impossible to keep up without taking. I'm not saying pushing these gloves. I'm saying the contracts need to be reworked, or you have to next time when the players and, and the owners sit down, that there has to be something set up for the max deals like. Yeah, we've we've tried. I mean, there's been there's been attempts over the years to you know to, to structure things that are you know different. But unfortunately, uh, the players' union in baseball is uh, extremely powerful, uh, and um, you know the money 
Uh, we've been unable to, you know, to, to get any type of, you know, salary cap or, I mean, they'll go on strike for that. I mean, you know, we've had opportunities. I think, you know, in my experience over the years, um, our best chance was, you know, was 94. And I think we had them, honestly. Um, but we, you know, we succumbed uh, to whatever pressures there were at that particular point in time. I mean, you know, I've talked to guys who were players at that time, and they basically said, you know, if, if, we, if we'd held out, you know, through the start of the season and actually put the replacement players on the field, which we almost did. I mean, I remember with, with the Braves, we had, you know, we actually had them in Atlanta, um, you know, ready to open the season. And, uh, you know, they, they, they made a breakthrough and, they, you know, season was, uh, you know, pushed back. Um, you know, for three weeks and had spring training. And then I think this season ended up being like 144 games or something like that. So, um, but since then, I mean, C-League has made it, you know, such a, uh, an important thing to have labor peace after that. I think, you know, we canceled the World Series in 94. And that, you know, that's probably, the, you know, he's big on his, was, has been big on his legacy. You know, there, there's, you know, there was no, no fight, uh, no, no, uh, appetite to, um, you know, go down that road. Um, and obviously some of the things you saw with, uh, you know, the, the infighting or the intrigue with the you know, commissioner, with the Reinsdorf and some of the other guys who I think were more hardliners, I think they had the, the opinion that, you know, that might not be the most important thing that, you know, we do need to get some, you know, some relief in that area. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, they had, they probably had to overpay, you know, in that market with what's happened, you know, that owner suffers from a little bit of lack of credibility, uh, in a lot of ways down there. And he probably had to go way beyond over and above, um, you know, to, to get that deal done. I don't, I, I, I mean, again, who knows, you know, you hope it's not a, you know, a, a precedent, uh, for more things to come. But I mean, I saw a comparison between, you know, that deal and, and Trout's deal. And, you know, they were sort of mocking Trout for, you know, taking the, you know, the shorter term deal. But my understanding is that he, they offered more than that and he didn't want more than that. He wanted to be able to become a free agent, um, you know, when he was, you know, 28 years old or whatever, whatever it is, whatever the, the, the time frame is. Um, and Stan can opt out of this deal after five years. I think that was an important thing from his perspective. Um, because he doesn't trust Jeffrey Loria, um, you know, to, you know, after what they did, you know, to get the stadium and then, you know, they signed Burley and Reyes and, and, and those guys and backloaded the contracts. And after one year, they shipped them all away. Uh, he was not happy with that. And I think he needed some, you know, some reassurance uh, for that. And he's basically in control after those first five years, uh, which is, you know, which is kind of scary from the standpoint of the, the franchise. Um, but, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, but I don't, I think that's more of an outlier than, uh, than it's going to be a, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a template for other things to come. But I don't disagree with you. Matt? Did you switch from Um, you know, I, I'd had, I had a lot of experience, you know, working with Jim Bowden on the baseball side and, uh, you know, I've just been a fan, you know, forever. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not a scout. I don't pretend to be a scout. I've gotten, had the opportunities to go out and, and be with our, you know, when I was with the Braves, I traveled with our cross checkers a lot and saw a lot of amateur free agent players. Um, I know enough probably to be dangerous, but the main thing, and the, the main thing I've learned, uh, you know, in the decision-making process is, uh, and I've been fortunate to work with, you know, three GMs that I think will, one of them's already in the Hall of Fame, and the other two certainly will be, John Scherholz and Andy McPhail. The most important skill that they taught me was to listen and, and listen and, and synthesize the information. And I've never seen anybody, you know, in, in, in the 27 years I've been in the game that's better at it than John Scherholz to take the information from his people, know, know who has, you know, know what their areas of expertise are, know where they're weak, know where their strengths and weaknesses, and, and take that information in and make good decisions, consistently good decisions. Uh, and obviously, you know, winning 14 straight, you know, divisions is, is proof of that. So, um, but uh, that's all I do. I, I you know, I, I try to listen and try to, you know, base my opinions uh, on what I hear from the scouts, you know, whether it's the, uh, the passion in their voice or the, or the uncertainty in their voice, you know, when they're, you know, they're giving an opinion on a player. All right, we've got to give up the room, but you guys can come down and say hello. Let's give a appreciation. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Now, one, one other piece of advice I'll give you, and, and again, you know, I know everybody, you know, if you want to work in sports, you know, you want to start off at the GM level. You know, I know that's, you know, it's, but if you have a chance to get your foot in the door, whether it's on the baseball side or the business side, um, you know, don't, don't narrow your focus too much. I mean, I'm pr perfect proof of it. I ended up on the baseball side and again, on the business side, started off and ended up on the baseball side and not by no, by no plan. I was in the right place at the right time, but if you get your foot in the door and you show your work ethic and your, your willingness to do whatever it takes, people will notice. And, you know, so don't, don't set your focus on, you know, a particular position uh, that you have to have, just get your foot in the door, get an opportunity. And, and, you know, then, then, you know, once you get in, that's when you can show what you got. So. Thanks.